welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It is a blessing to be here with you this morning. Um, if you would, please turn to Genesis 6 in your Bibles. Genesis 6. It's a joy to see all these kids in the service this morning. What a blessing. Such a blessing from the Lord. Well, as a church, we've been working our way through um, the book of Genesis, especially this first section of the book of Genesis, which gives us a foundation for our understanding of the world that God has made, and it explains man's rebellion against the good creator. Chapters 3 through 11 can be broken into five stories which depict a good world that is being polluted by the depravity of mankind, or you could say the moral corruption of mankind is polluting this good world God has made. We have studied the first story, which was the fall of mankind through Adam and Eve. Second, the way of Cain. Third, that strange story about the sons of God that we heard about last week in the first, uh, the beginning verses of chapter 6. But then that story, the story about the sons of God, flows directly into the fourth story in this first section of Genesis, the story of the biblical flood, the flood of Noah's day. Each one of these stories depict a world that is increasingly corrupt and filled with violence. At this point, mankind has filled the earth numerically, but they have not filled it with the glory of God. Instead, they have filled it with corruption and violence. The first six chapters of the Bible sprint through nearly 2,000 years. I think it's if the genealogies are exact and we don't have any gaps and then it's roughly 1,650 years, I think. So it's nearly 2,000 years of human history has gone by by the time we get to the flood. This is about the same amount of time between us and the birth of Jesus. That's how much time we're talking about, roughly. Looking back at the 2,000 years of history since the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus, we'd say that a lot has happened in those 2,000 years since Jesus came. A lot has happened. People have been born and died. Cities and civilizations have been built and destroyed. Wars have been won and lost. And kingdoms and empires have come and gone in just those 2,000 years since Christ. Genesis hints at the very same reality in the first 2,000 years of human history. We saw how Adam's descendants built cities, were innovators, accumulated great wealth and power, and waged war with one another. Civilization was thriving, there was wealth and prosperity, and most estimate that Earth's population was at least into the millions of people during the days of Noah. Some even suggest that the population of Noah's day could have been more numerous than our own today when we look at how long they were living. I mean, some of them were living into their 900 years old. But either way, here's the point. The days of Noah are not or were not all that different from today. 
People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, working, building, buying and selling, but also killing, abusing, stealing, lying and cheating. And all of this, even the seemingly innocent activities were done with indifference toward God and with hearts bent on doing evil. When the Creator looked down on Noah's generation, on a generation not much different from our own, we hear these words when God looks down on them, which we studied last week. He says in Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8, saying, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. There was sorrow. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These verses, which we looked at last week, set the stage for what is going to happen over the next five chapters of Genesis. God is going to judge the wickedness of millions of unrepentant people, cleansing the earth of that generation. But God will also extend grace to a few. Through the terrible destruction of the flood, we as the church must wrestle with the truth that in the day of judgment, in the day of judgment, only the righteous will be saved. Only the righteous will be saved. With this backdrop, let's pray together and then we'll read the rest of Genesis 6 and 7. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for each one who's gathered together today. Lord, I pray that your word would be made clear to us. That the Spirit of God would take my fumbling attempts to teach the word and that the Spirit of God would glorify your name and would draw us closer in faith and obedience to you. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our good, and may no one here today leave without surrendering their lives, their wills, their activity to you. Would you do this for your glory? Amen. Let's read Genesis 6. We're going to begin in verse 9, and we're just going to move through the rest of chapter 7. And as we teach through Genesis, we are going to get used to this as a church of just reading large sections of Scripture as we work our way through narrative in the Bible. So let's read together Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. Verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. 
in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to, be, to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now there's a pause in time. Let's step back from the passage real quick. There is a pause of time here. Chapter 7 is just going to continue with the story. But roughly 80 years, I mean there's different estimates, but roughly 80 years pass between the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7 where there's this field with nothing on it. And then chapter 7 begins where Noah has obeyed God and done everything that God commanded. We're not, we aren't told that Noah is given any other word from the Lord during these 80 years. But it says that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's jump into chapter 7. 80 years later, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground." Verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of the clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the, on the very same day, Noah and his son Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons went with him, entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains 
covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21, And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He, God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days until there. Church, I I hope we all realize that this is not just a children's story. After nearly 2,000 years of increasing human corruption and violence on the earth, God executes millions of people and condemns them to eternal judgment. In this historical account, we see that God's patience towards the unrepentant does have an end. God's patience towards the unrepentant does have an end. Mankind wants to imagine the Creator God as a soft, cuddly grandpa who would never judge the sins of his grandchildren or great-grandchildren. But the Scriptures warn us not to make God out to be like one of us. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. And in Exodus 34, 7, God proclaims about himself. These are God's words. He says, he says that God will by no means clear the guilty. He will not clear, clear the guilty. No sin ever committed will go unpunished. God is righteous and just and will never Sweep the sins of mankind under the rug. Every evil thought, word, and deed must and will be punished in full. We know God will ultimately punish unrepentant sin in eternity. But sometimes the wrath of God against sin breaks through even into this world and dramatically displays the judgment of God on unrepentant man. The biblical flood depicts just such an event. God's wrath against man's corruption and violence breaks through into this world and millions perish. Why? Why does God's patience end so dramatically? We're not told why God chose that day and hour to put an end to all flesh, as if there was some line in the sand that people had finally crossed. They were just just the unforgivable sin that they committed, and then He broke forth the flood. No, we're not told that. We're only told that the Lord looked down on the earth and saw that the wickedness of man was great, the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. That's what we're told. Men had gone out into the world as image bearers, but they were not bringing God's presence and reign into all the earth. Instead, they had filled the earth with the presence and reign of Satan. 
They had followed in the way of Cain, as we've seen over the last few Sundays, sermons. They had followed in the way of Cain, murdering and lying their way through life and uniting themselves with demons even, as we saw last week. We may be tempted to think that our world isn't nearly that bad, that you know, the day we live in, surely it's not that bad. But we should be very cautious before we think or speak that way. When God looked down on this earth, the one we live in today, when God looked down on this earth at the end of 2022, last year, what he saw in that single year was over 40 wars being actively fought around the world on the globe, with half a million reported deaths just from those wars. When God looked down last year, he witnessed over half a million murders on the earth. That's what statistics tell us. We know they're usually low. God also watched as humans committed 73 million abortions of babies. God watched as humans did this. And God knows countless other verbal and physical acts of violence that our minds cannot even begin to comprehend. And we haven't even begun to consider how sinful man corrupts every good thing that God created. How the sinful nature in us corrupts even some of the seemingly innocent things. When God looks down on the earth in our day, he surely could say the same of our generation as he did of Noah's. The earth is corrupt in my sight. And the earth is filled with violence. All flesh has corrupted their way on the earth. I truly believe that statement is true today. When God looked on this type of evil in Noah's day, he responded by saying in chapter 6, verse 13, he says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Notice what what God says there. He says that he is going to use the earth, the creation that man is supposed to subdue and reign over. God is going to use that earth to destroy the unfaithful rulers of the earth. That's what mankind was called to be, to subdue and reign over the earth. And now God is going to take that earth and destroy them with the earth. And he's not just going to destroy the the worst people, the Adolf Hitlers or the Stalins of their day. No, not not just the mighty men like we learned last week, how they were renowned for their violence and oppression. God is not just going to destroy them, no. Every unrepentant soul on the earth would die. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 17 says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This was no local flood or judgment that just fell on a few. There was no remote corner of the earth or high mountain that provided safety for man. When the day of God's judgment comes, the wicked are exposed and there is nowhere for man to hide from the righteous judge of the universe. But this is not where the story ends. 
we also see that God provides a way of escape for the righteous. In chapter 5, we're introduced to a man named Noah, who is a descendant of Adam's son, Seth. There were some in Seth's line who, did, who called or believed upon the name of the Lord, and we find out that this is also true of Noah. In the midst of a corrupt, violent, and demonic culture, Noah is said to be a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah is even given the rare description of having walked with God. And as we hear God declare that He is going to destroy all flesh, we also hear these words in chapter 6, verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When Noah is over 500 years old, we are told that God speaks to Noah, warns him of the destruction that is coming, and commands him to build an ark. And here's the reason Noah is going to do, uh, Noah is to do all of these things. Genesis 6, 17 through 18, God says, Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This is the first time in Scripture that we hear the word covenant. The full extent of this covenant will only be explained later in chapter 9, but for now, the important thing for us to realize is that God is promising to enter into an agreement of relational blessing if Noah believes and obeys God. Covenant is an agreement of relational blessing, at least I define it just in my own words that helps me understand. God is promising to enter into an agreement of relational blessing if Noah believes and obeys God. So looking back over chapter 6, we've seen that Noah found favor, or could also be translated grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We've also seen that God promises to enter into a covenant or a relationship of blessing with Noah if Noah believes and obeys God. Noah had to believe God about the flood. And Noah had to build the ark, collect the food, and gather the animals as God had said. Those were the requirements. And then in the final verse of chapter 6, we read these words. Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did all that God commanded him. These three things are essential in the salvation of Noah and his family from the day of God's wrath. God's grace, God's promise of a covenant or this relationship of blessing, if there is faith and obedience in the ones who would be saved. The emphasis of Genesis chapter 6 and 7 is that the world stands guilty and condemned before a holy God, but because of His grace, God will save those who believe in Him and obey Him. We know this is true of Noah because repeatedly the account tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It's something you cannot miss in the account. It's repeated over and over. Now when we hear the now when we like as so, like westernized English speaking people hear the words righteous and blameless we sometimes make the mistake of imagining Noah was sinless but this is not the way the writers of scripture intend for us to understand righteousness or righteous and blameless 
when describing human beings. Instead, righteous and blameless describe a person's right standing before God. Noah was not without sin. Noah was a sinner. The Old Testament write, writers make it very clear that humans are conceived and born into a sinful nature. See Psalm 51 verse 5. It's very clear. But Noah was blameless and righteous in the eyes of God and his generation. How could this be? How can you be blameless and righteous yet also know that you've committed sins? Thankfully, only a few chapters later, we are given a greater clarity about God, how God declares sinful men to be righteous or blameless in His sight. In Genesis 15, several hundred years later, God promises to do wonderful and unbelievable things for Abram, who's a descendant of Noah. In chapter 15, we're given incredible insight into God's divine grace towards a sinner. Genesis 15 verse 6 says this, right after God has given these unbelievable promises to Abraham, these things that he can barely even imagine, the passage says this, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it or reckoned it to him as righteousness. The Lord counted it to him as righteousness. It was Abram's faith which would be later followed by obedience that God looked upon and then counted to Abram as righteousness. God declared Abram righteous in his sight because Abram responded in faith to the promise of God. This is the only way any person in history has ever been declared righteous in the sight of God. Through faith, which produces obedience. Hebrews 11, 6-7 confirms that this is in fact the case for Old Testament believers, even for righteous Noah. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. These two verses in Hebrews contain one of the clearest descriptions in the Bible of how to escape the day of wrath. How to find salvation though you know you are guilty of sin. Noah, you, no, this passage teaches us that you must believe that Yahweh exists as He defines Himself. You must believe His definition of who He is. And you must believe that He rewards those who seek Him. That He is faithful to His promises. Noah was warned of the coming destruction, which he could not yet see. He couldn't see the flood coming. Some people believe that rain had never 
even fell on the earth up until that point. That's some speculation. But up until this point, rain has not been mentioned in Scripture. So his imagination could not prove to him that what God said was going to happen. He could not see it. He could barely even imagine it. But in reverent fear, Hebrew tells us, Noah did what God required of him. He believed God and he obeyed God. By these two things, by faith and by the works of obedience which faith produced, by these two things, Noah condemned the world, Hebrew says. He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith, which we, we see over and over again, produced obedience, ensured him an inheritance of righteousness. An inheritance is not something that you or I earn or deserve. An inheritance is a gift to you from another. It is a gift from someone who has gone before me, worked for me, sacrificed and suffered for my benefit. That is an inheritance. If Noah stood before God on the merit of his own righteous life, then he would have been condemned along with the rest of the, the proud and rebellious world around him. But because he believed the voice of the Lord and obeyed, because of this, Noah was given an inheritance in Jesus Christ. That's the way the New Testament depicts the salvation of Old Testament saints. is that God the Father is looking forward into history into what Christ would accomplish on the cross. And when it's saying that Noah received, he was an heir of righteousness, it's talking about him inheriting the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, the Savior, who would come and accomplish all righteousness on behalf of those who believe past, present, and future. This passage in Hebrews 11 that we've been looking at should be near and dear to the heart of every Christian living in these last days before the second coming of Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers all agree that Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming again. But this time he will come with the sword in judgment. And in the end, this world will again be consumed, not by water, but by fire. 2 Peter 3, verse 7 is one passage that warns us of this end. And Peter is writing to the church in this passage, and he warns the church, saying, The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. As we reflect on this warning from God about the coming destruction of this corrupted world, Hebrews 11.7 becomes a verse of great hope for all Christians. As you think about coming destruction, and then you read Hebrews 11.7, it should give you great hope if you are a Christian following God. Imagine Hebrews 11:7 as if it was written about us instead of Noah. So imagine if we are put into this verse and the hope that this gives us. 
by faith, Christians being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, the destruction of this world. In reverent fear, we cling to Christ, the ark of our salvation for the saving of our souls. By this, we condemn the world and become heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the way the New Testament writers speak of all those who cling to Christ as the Savior, the only way of escape, the only ark of salvation for those who are living today. This promise of inherited righteousness and salvation comes through faith. It's made extremely clear that it is through faith and that without faith it's impossible to please God. But this faith must produce obedience if it is to be received as genuine by God on the day of judgment. Yes, passages like Ephesians 2, 8-9 through 9, do tell us That by grace you have been saved. It's the grace of God. And that it is through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. This is absolutely true. No one will stand before God. And point to their own good deeds. As the foundation of their salvation. We all desperately require. Inherited righteousness. From Christ. But think for for a moment with me. If Noah didn't obey God, if his belief in the destruction that was coming was so weak that or was so ingenuine that he was like, I don't need to build an ark. If that was the case for Noah, would he have been saved from the coming destruction? If there was no obedience for Noah, Would he have been saved from the destruction that was coming upon the world? The scriptures are very clear that those who would inherit Christ's righteousness must have faith that is alive. Faith that produces obedience to God. Hebrews 11.6 emphasizes the essential requirement of faith when it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. But listen to the words of Hebrews in the very next chapter. Hebrews 12, 14 warns the church saying, Strive for peace with everyone and and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Notice carefully what he is saying. He is saying, strive or pursue. He's speaking to Christians. Strive for the holiness of without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is this set-apartness from the world, taken out of the world and set apart unto God. That's that's what the the definition of the word church even means. It's those who have been called out from the world and unto God. When you hear the word church, that is what it means. This means that if the faith you claim to have does not begin to generate holiness, the set-apartness unto God, then Jesus, on the day of judgment, will deny you because you denied Him by your life. 
Simply put, if your faith isn't producing obedience, this growing in obedience to your Savior, then your faith is fake. It's not genuine. And you will not be saved in the day of judgment. James 2.26 confirms this widespread New Testament teaching saying, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Genuine saving faith always produces increasing obedience. Please hear this, this from me, church. Please, please hear me this morning that this is not a warning to those who are walking with God faithfully today. This is not meant to stir up doubt in the goodness of God towards His faithful ones and His mercy towards the humble and His forgiving nature and His kindness to those who come in repentance and faith. This is not that message. It's not a message to create doubt in His faithful ones. No, this is a warning to all those who would claim to have entered the ark of Christ as their salvation, but then spend their days in corruption and violence, indulging themselves in the demonic sensuality of our generation. This is a call to repentance for any who claim to be among those who are saved from the wrath of, of God by faith in Jesus Christ. They claim that but then who are not confessing things like the bitterness or the hatred they have for others in their own heart. Those who are not bringing their lusts into submission. Those who are living life only for the sake of eating, drinking, marrying, and accumulating wealth and are treating Jesus Christ as little more than a religious fire escape or a get-out-of-jail-free card. If that is you, I plead with you, enter into the ark of salvation that is Jesus Christ. Reject the corruption of this world that is destined for death. Cleanse your way and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because the day of God's wrath draws near. It is near. And only the righteous will be saved those who have inherited the righteousness of Christ and who are following Him in obedience. You may ask, how can you inherit the righteousness of Jesus Christ? How can you be saved from the wrath to come? Well, Noah provides us an example. He was declared righteous and saved from the wrath of God because he believed the Lord and his faith produced obedience. His faith produced holiness. And he is now with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that you have made it very clear to us that we, we must come to you in humility and faith. We bring nothing in our hands to you when we come pleading for salvation. There is no righteousness in us organically of our own that we can parade in front of you and you be impressed. Yet, Lord, there are so many around us 
who claim Christ, who say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'll see you there. Yet who do not have any marks of Christ on them. There is no obedience, no humility, no repentance, no walking by faith, no obedience of the saints, no fruit of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that no one sitting here today would be deceived into thinking that I am good. My heavenly grandfather, Santa Claus figure, is going to save all of us and we'll all be there together. But instead, that we, with fear and reverent awe, would strive for the holiness as we cling to the ark, which is Christ. And Lord, that we would believe in you, that our faith would be in you alone, and that we would strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Would you do this for your glory and our good? Amen.